And at this time, I will introduce to you our guest speaker, who is no stranger to us. He's filled our pulpit several times before, and we always love having Jason Crosby back. But Pastor gave me a little bio to read so that we'll become more acquainted with him for those of you that aren't. It says, Jason was born in Moline, Illinois, and was raised in Moline and in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He attended the University of Northwestern St. Paul, Minnesota, where he graduated in 2001 with a bachelor's degree in broadcasting and electronic media and a second degree in Bible. Jason joined Moody Radio in 2005 as the news director and a producer on The Morning Show. He left in 2008 to pursue a master's degree at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. In June of 2012, Jason graduated with a Master's of Divinity degree in expository preaching. He rejoined Moody Radio in September 2012 as the operations coordinator and temporary co-host of The Morning Show. He was named station manager in January 2013. Jason and his wife, Susie, have been married since 2007 and have three children. He enjoys spending time with friends and family, reading and hearing stories of God at work. By far, his favorite activity is preaching and teaching the Bible. So it is our privilege to let him do what he loves to do most. Jason. Good morning. So it's, uh, it, is good, it is good to be with you this morning. Thanks for inviting me back. I trust that the, the last times that I was here went well, and that's why I'm back, and not because I was the only name in the phone book. But... I, uh, it, it, it's fun to hear uh, the, uh, the, the bio read because, uh, so I did graduate in uh, 2001. I, uh, I don't think I'm a model college student by any means. I took a four-year degree and turned it into four and a half. So that uh, was uh, uh, because I excelled. <laughs> And then the other thing too that, that struck me is, so I went, to, I went to North High School, I went to Northwestern for college, and I went to Southeastern for seminary. So if it's a direction, I've pretty much gone to school there. And so that's, uh, anyway. Hey, thank you. So uh, as manager of Moody Radio, if you listened at all last week, you know that we had our big uh, share event. And uh, so I wanna invite you to come back to us now. You can be done listening to K-Love, our share event's over. And so, uh, uh, but uh, we had uh, a really good week. God stretched us, and um, and so our goal was two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. And I I thought for sure, when it was all said and done, we were going to be about ten to twenty thousand dollars short of the goal. And uh, and so I I opened up uh, our uh, our tracker this morning and looked at the numbers, and we're actually just six thousand dollars away from our goal. And so it just God does this every every share season. He he just stretches me and our team and uh, just uh, I'm I'm the kind of person that I like to map it out for God and just show him, hey, here's how you can do this and we can make it work. And and uh, God says thanks, but no thanks. And and so I don't know. I don't know if we're going to reach the the six thousand dollars that we have left. But there's another week still that our listeners can give to share, and and that'll get counted towards our goal. And so we'll see. We'll see what happens next uh, Sunday at this time when when the final numbers are in. But to only be six thousand away, thinking that uh, twenty thousand is where we were going to end was uh, it's a we're, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm absolutely thrilled. Hey, so if you brought your Bible with you this morning, 
We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 48. And so one of my responsibilities as station manager at WDLM is to visit with, with pastors and to take them out to lunch or to grab coffee or anything uh, along those lines and just discover the different ways that God is at work in our community. And so uh, frequently when I'm visiting with these pastors, which was the case with Pastor Ed, he and I went over to Tangled Wood a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and so over lunch, you get the opportunity to, uh, where you're asked, what, what do you want to drink with your meal? And, and so when, when I'm out to eat, most of the time I, I, I pick water, but if I, get, if I just get a hankering, if I'm gonna get a, a hankering for a pop, then uh, it's, it's uh, a cherry Pepsi is my, my beverage of choice. I don't like coffee, I don't like tea, but I, I do like cherry Pepsi. But there's one, one beverage in, in particular with cherry Pepsi, and it's, it's this, it's when I'm given the option to have Pepsi with cherry grenadine. That is a game changer for me, and the reason why is because I then get to control how much cherry syrup goes into my Pepsi. And it's usually, I'd like a little bit of Pepsi with my cherry grenadine. But here's the thing, don't, don't let me confuse you. What I drink at the restaurant isn't cherry Pepsi. You see, Pepsi determines what cherry Pepsi is because that's their product. And so even though I call it a cherry Pepsi, what I drink at the restaurant is actually Pepsi with cherry syrup in it. It's my creation. And it's not the same because I've added cherry to my Pepsi so that what it does is it conforms to my standards, not Pepsi's. You see, anything that I add to Pepsi is a deviation from the original. And so in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, that's our text. And what we're going to see is that God's standard for us is to love our neighbors, which I'm sure we're all fine with. But here's the thing. Neighbors includes our enemies. Neighbors includes our enemies. And so to do anything less than that is a deviation from the original standard from the original instruction. And so let's read Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to worship you. We're here in this place to worship you. We are watching on the live stream to worship you. And so, God, help us to do that. You know the things that fill our minds. You are intimately acquainted with all of our ways. 
And so, Lord, help us to set those things aside and to hear now what it is that you desire to say to us. Because it's your word. It's your word that was just read. Not words pulled from thin air, but your word. And so, Lord, may it penetrate our hearts. May it convict us of sin. May it draw us closer to Jesus Christ. God, may it be used for your glory and for yours alone. So, God, use this time. Continue our worship. Be worshiped. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus' words in verse 43 are interesting, aren't they? He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So why is this interesting? Because only half of the verse is a biblical command that is found in the Old Testament. The other half was something that the Pharisees then attached to God's law. So they modified the law and made it something it was never meant to say. So while I was preparing for this sermon, I found a a blog post from Shane Pruitt. Shane is a pastor and an author who lives in Texas. And he wrote a blog titled, Nine Unbiblical Statements That Bible-Loving Christians Believe. And so these are statements that sound biblical and are sometimes proclaimed as truth, but they really aren't true at all. And I just want to look at two of them. First, God helps those who help themselves. And so this statement's actually anti-gospel. Self-reliance, self-righteousness, or the attitude of trying harder and doing better actually gets in the way of the work of God. Jesus saves those who die to themselves. Listen to the words of Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let me give you another one. God wants me to be happy. Some of us believe God exists to be our personal genie. He's waiting to give us our every wish. We justify our sinful actions by saying, God just wants me to be happy. We know that couples end marriages because they're no longer happy. People make purchases like cars, homes, food, clothing, cherry Pepsi, all in the name of happiness. But here's the thing. Happiness is tied to feelings. And they're tied to emotions, and and they are often based on circumstances. And those things change all of the time. God wants us to be obedient to him. And he wants us to trust him and know that everything that he does is for our good, even if it doesn't make us happy in that moment. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All right, let's deal with the one in our text. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So this was the traditional teaching that was taught by the religious leaders of the time, and the idea to love your neighbor came from Leviticus 19.18, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So let's, let's wrestle with this word neighbor. Who are our neighbors? So if I were to ask you that question, I I bet you would answer the same way that I would answer that question. So on uh, if if I'm where my house sits, on on one side we have Brian and Rita, and then over in the corner it's Chris and Rhonda, and across the street is Pat, 
and then the Hughes live next door to them. And then uh, on the, the corner, we have uh, Alex and Megan, and next to them are Mike and Ann, and then next to them, it's uh, Eldon and Kay, and then you're back at our house. And we know the people who live behind us as well, but, but we wouldn't stop there, right? So that's the people on our block, but we have friends who live a block over, and they have a pool, and we really like them because they have a pool, so we like them for other reasons too, but but we would consider them our neighbors as well. And then we just became friends just recently with the people who live next door to them. And so we would consider them neighbors. So the definition of, of neighbor is really much broader than just the people who live on our block or whose properties touch ours. So the Jews believe the context of Leviticus 19.18 limited the definition of neighbor to a fellow Israelite. And so as a result, there was no room for that term to describe anyone else. But in Luke 10.29, Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? And we find his reply in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. And I put the text on the screen uh, if you don't want to flip there. Luke 10, 30 through 37. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed him, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, oil and pour, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Isn't Jesus' answer to this, this question interesting? You see, Jesus didn't change the definition of who a neighbor is. He didn't change the definition. What Jesus did is he rightly interpreted Leviticus 19.18. He correctly applied it. And so here's the thing. When God states something as fact... It's important that we make the same application that he does. So the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, is anyone in need you might come across in your daily life. Anyone in need you might come across in your daily life. Okay, so now that we know who our neighbor is, what do we do with this hate your enemy piece? Where'd that come from? So as we've discovered, love your neighbor is found in Leviticus, but where in the Old Testament is this instruction from God to hate your enemy? And the answer is this. It was added. It was added. According to one commentator, the Israelites felt that God's direction of their historic relations with other people, such as his command to exterminate the Canaanites and the precatory psalm supported or even called for this hatred of others. Here's the thing, what they failed to take into account was the fact 
that those and similar commands, including the imprecatory psalms, they were judicial. They were never individual. So, like cherry to Pepsi, hate your enemy is a statement that the religious authorities of the day added. They added it. Here's the thing. In order to obey the religious teaching to hate their enemy, an Israelite would have to disregard other Old Testament passages, namely Exodus 23, 4 through 5, which is an instruction about what to do if you come across your enemy's donkey, and Proverbs 25, 21, which you might be familiar with, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So those are clear instructions regarding the loving acts that a person does for an enemy. And so if, if you're going to hate your enemy, you have to violate these two instructions. So now, now we've got a challenge. Because in your life, when you have God's word saying one thing, and a religious instruction or any other instruction saying another thing, it places the two in conflict. And so here's the deal. God's word trumps the other instruction every time. Every time. And so we need to be on guard against false teachers especially as we get closer to the return of Christ. And so now we need to move to verses 44 and 45, where we're going to see Jesus make a correct application of loving your neighbor. So in verses 44 and 45, he says this, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I really like what John MacArthur says here. He writes, the scribes and Pharisees were proud, prejudiced, judgmental, spiteful, hateful, vengeful men who masqueraded as the custodians of God's law and the spiritual leaders of Israel. To them, Jesus' command to love your enemies must have seemed naive and foolish in the extreme. They not only felt they had the right but the duty to hate their enemies. Not to hate those who obviously deserve to be hated would be a breach of righteousness. Unfortunately, it's easy for us to become just like that. We put people into categories. We put them in, in categories of those we like and those we dislike. We put people in, in categories, right? We have Republicans and Democrats. We have Packers, Bears, and Vikings fans. We have Cherry Coke and Cherry Pepsi drinkers. We have WDLM and that other station listeners. So look, we have here the religious leaders of the day who are saying, we know the law. We, we know how to interpret the law. And here's what it says. They're saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We need to pay careful attention to the construction of this verse. So notice what Jesus says at the front end. Jesus says, but I say to you, but I say to you. Jesus is putting his word, his word above 
tradition. His word is on par with scripture. That's incredible. The religious leaders say that a religious tradition is true because they have rightly interpreted scripture and the teachings of other rabbis. Christ is saying, my teaching isn't true because Leviticus 19 is my authority. Rather, Leviticus 19 is true because I am the authority. That's huge. Jesus is saying, I make Leviticus 19 true. True. It isn't just that Jesus' teaching is the standard of truth. Jesus himself is the standard of truth. And that's why he can say without flinching, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus commands a love without limits. A love that loves everyone regardless of what they say or do to us. Can you imagine what it would look like if this love were practiced by you and by me? What would our families look like? What about our relationships with friends and with coworkers? our neighbors, what would our community look like? Why would Jesus order us to love like this? He gives us two reasons. The first is found in verse 45. It makes us like God. He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So that's the Hebrew way of saying that you'll be like your heavenly Father. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, if you impartially show love to your enemies as well as to your friends, you will be like God. Now listen, Adam and Eve got this wrong. Not that you will be God. You will be like God. How so? Who shows? God shows the impartiality of his love by sending the sun and rain on both the righteousness and unrighteousness. So when we love without limits, we are like God. So the second reason is that such love distinguishes us from the world. Look at the rest of verse four, or in, in verse 46, Jesus gives us a negative example to make his point. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Now, no one listening to Jesus would have missed his point. Tax collectors had a terrible reputation in Jesus' day. The Roman Empire used an oppressive tax collecting system in which the government determined how much money was collected and then hired a man to collect it from that area. Each tax collector had to turn in a specific amount to Rome, but they could keep anything above what they collected beyond the tax. So tax collectors were crooks. They were rich crooks. 
And they were despised by everyone, especially the Jews, because collectors were employed by the Gentiles. And so Jesus' point is that even those disgusting, swindling tax collectors loved their own tax-collecting buddies. So if a person loves only his friends, he's doing no better than a cheating tax collector. So you love a tax collector. So you love your friends who love you back. Hooray for your team. Jesus underscored his point in the next statement in verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And so here's the question. Here's the question for application for you and for me in this room and and watching on our stream. Is there something about my love that cannot be explained in natural terms? Is there something unique about my love for others that is not present in the life of an unbeliever? And this is an important question. Because, friends, if the answer is no, if we love only those that we have something in common with and those who treat us well, if that is the extent of our love... And maybe we're not Christian at all. We're definitely not loving as Christ loved. And so Christ is not calling us to begrudge a neighbor. He's calling us to love them. And so how do we do that? Jesus, how do we do that? Well, let's jump to verse 44. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. How do we do this? Okay, so we have to note something right off the bat. Jesus does not ask, nor has he ever asked us, to love our enemies in the same way that we love those who are closest to us. There are people in your life and in mine that don't take any effort to love. And Jesus is not asking us to have a a romantic love or a buddy love or even a family love or an emotional love for our enemies. What he commands is an agape love. It's this. It's a deliberate, intelligent, determined love. It's an invincible goodwill toward them. Kent Hughes tells the story of a missionary couple that had just returned from the mission field and they rented a rather nice townhouse. At least it was nice compared to what they'd had on the mission field. And the wife was a very creative person and did a wonderful job of decorating the place and the family settled in. Only one thing was wrong, the family who moved in next door. They turned the front yard into a desert, broke the windows out of their house, were always using foul language, urinated in the front yard, and generally caused havoc in the neighborhood. The final straw was when one of the boys climbed into the missionary family's yard and threw a whole can of orange paint over the patio walls. The missionary wife was really angry. She didn't like her neighbors, and she wasn't happy with the Lord for putting her where he had put her. Realizing that her heart was not right, she got down on her knees and said, Lord, you know 
that I do not like these people at all. God, help me to love them. After that prayer, she didn't feel any different. But she resolved to exercise love. She baked her neighbors a pie and took it to them. And that began a caring relationship. You know what changed? What changed in their relationship? Can I tell you? Ready for it? Nothing. Nothing. The neighbors did not change. But she did. She did. She had began to love them. And when those neighbors moved away, she wept. If your neighbors moved away, would you weep? That's an example of someone choosing to love. A love that says, I will love by the grace of Christ within me. And so what? What what can you bring to your neighbors? What about the neighbors who are hard to love? C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. If the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you can do this. But more important, if you are a believer, you're commanded to love like this. The first command is to love our enemies. The second is to pray for those who persecute you. This, too, is an exceedingly high call. This takes us to a place of selfless love. Now, Jesus is our greatest example. He's our greatest example in all of this. For while he was being crucified, maybe even while the nails were being driven through his hands, he prayed repeatedly, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, when you pray for someone while they are persecuting you, you are assaulting the throne of God on their behalf. God, help this person. God, open the eyes of politicians. God, open the eyes of Planned Parenthood, of the Supreme Court, of gay lobbyists, of any who oppose what God calls good. God, open the eyes of Packer fans. One benefit of praying for our enemies is that it it changes us it changes us see it's impossible to go on praying for another without loving him or her and those that you truly pray for will become objects of your conscious love so this uh isn't in my my notes but it it hit me as We're walking through the text this morning that for Christ to say, love your enemies, and for us to be in this room hearing our our Messiah proclaim those words, it's incredibly humbling. Because there was a season, friends, where you and I, we were the enemy. We were the enemy. And so, for Jesus Christ to say, love your enemies, and then have him set that example before us is incredibly humbling. So I want to wrap up our our time 
by inviting you to, to grab a pen or uh, maybe you pull out your smartphone and open the notes section, but you're gonna need something to write on. And I just want you to hold on to it for a moment. Because I'm gonna close our time by praying for our enemies. And here's why you need the pen or something to, to write on, because what I'm wondering is if, while I'm praying, God might place someone on your heart that for you is an enemy. And here's the thing, right? If you have a pen and paper or a device ready, you can make immediate application. You can write their name down. And then I would like to invite you to begin praying for them. Let me assure you, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. But I wanna, I wanna draw your attention to a story real quick. Do you remember what happened to our brothers and sisters in Christ at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston several years ago? It'll be six years in June. It was June 17th, 2015. Dylan Roof opened fire on the church and took the lives of nine people. Do you remember the bond hearing that happened four days later? At the bond hearing, there were five relatives of the nine people who died who were invited by the judge to address Dylan Roof. And one by one, they stood in a courtroom and addressed the accused killer. And one by one, they told him that he had hurt them. And one by one, they said they forgave him. And I want to I tell you what two of them said. This is Nadine Collier. She said this, I forgive you. You took something really precious away from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. It hurts me. It hurts a lot of people. But God forgives you and I forgive you. And then Anthony Thompson made this profound statement. He said, I forgive you and my family forgives you. We would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ, so he can change your ways no matter what happens to you, and you'll be okay. Do that, and you'll be better off than you are right now. Friends, that is an example of what it looks like to love your enemies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are hard words. They're not my words. You didn't invite me. I'm not in the pulpit to proclaim the words of Jason. These are your words, straight from the Bible. You, your son, spoke these words. And so, God, you know us. You know, Father, that our pride is going to get in the way of applying them. And so, God, 
we plead with you first and foremost for humility. God, this is going to hurt. We'd like to be able to hold things over people. And so, Lord, we need your help. We are weak, weak creatures. But you have given us the strength. If we are followers of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so, God, we have what we need. We have what we need. It's going to hurt, but we have what we need. You've not left us to fend for ourselves. So, God, we ask for your help. God, I pray for my friends in this room and for those watching on the live stream, if there are any who are watching who have yet to place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that's step one. That's step one. They have to come to peace with you. They have to be reconciled with you. And so, God, I, I pray right now, there are any in this room, if there's any watching on the live stream who have yet to place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, oh God, may they in this moment acknowledge that they're a sinner and that they need a Savior. And in this moment, may they say, I place my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and I will follow him the rest of my days. God, for those of us in this room who have already done that, we need your help. We need your help. Maybe there is someone who you have brought to mind immediately, and we know, we know without hesitation who that person is. Oh God, may we continue to pray for them, even in this moment, that our hearts would be aligned with Christ. God, that... that you would uh, provide for us a, a plan, a plan to love them, to have this invincible goodwill toward them. It's going to be hard. They've hurt us. They've hurt us. And you know that. And yet the instruction is still there to love your enemies. So, Father, bring the person to mind that we need to love. Thank you, God, for loving us while we were your enemies. That's incredible. So, Lord, we ask for your help. We pray that you were worshipped this morning. That as we, as we sing and as we leave this place, God, that we would continue to worship you. We thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us to fend for ourselves. But God, you have revealed yourself to us. God, may we be faithful to read your word. Thank you for the time we've spent in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.